0: Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University in uh, not-so-sunny Sydney today. And I'm here today with Kathleen Bashinsky, who is an assistant professor of public health at Muhlenberg College, and the author of a, uh, a fascinating uh, new book titled No Game for Boys to Play, the history of youth football and the origins of a public health crisis, which is out from UNC Press in 2019. Thank you, Kathleen, for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.
0: I I have to say I really enjoyed this book, and um, as I understand, I'm not the only one who's enjoyed it. It's now um, it did, did it has it officially won its award. I don't know in COVID times if whether everything has been made official yet.
1: Yeah, it actually did. Um, I was very honored to get an award from uh, the North American Society for Sport History. Um, I just wasn't able to go in person because the, the conference was canceled due to COVID. So just got to find out about it through, uh, through email.
0: So this is, this is a definite um, award-winning book that uh, I think a lot of people will enjoy. And, and Kathleen, can you just start off by telling us how, you've, uh, how you came to this project?
1: Absolutely. Uh, so my, my background is in public health, and I actually got interested in sports safety as a public health issue because I played uh, soccer as uh, a young person and uh, ripped my ACL and MCL and meniscus um, so all in one sort of big knee injury uh, playing high school soccer. And that kind set of set me down the path of looking at sports injuries Especially among kids, as a public health issue, because not only did I experience that, but I knew so many teammates, uh, you know, friends, classmates who had also had, uh, be it a, a knee injury or a concussion or uh, ankle injury or all kinds of other injuries playing sports. Uh, and so when I went on to do my PhD in public health, I really wanted to do my dissertation on something related to sports injuries. And I ended up sort of fixing on youth football because that's one of the most, you know, popular uh, sports in the United States. Over a million boys play football every year. And it also has some of the biggest health risks from the repeated collisions. And I wanted to sort of understand, well, how did we get to this place where we're at now, Um, being particularly concerned about concussions as well as other injuries how did this really quite risky sport become so popular for young boys, despite the risks, or maybe because of them? And then, how did it end up becoming framed, especially in recent years, uh, as a public health issue?
0: Yeah, I think um, you know I, I interview a fair number of people uh, through this through this uh, podcast, but this is I think the first book that I've read that tries to link um, historical studies, cultural studies, especially studies, masculinity and histories of of medicine in in the particular way that you do. And and it seemed at times that you not only have uh, the goal of an historian, which is to kind of like explain this phenomenon over time, but also a kind of medical goal too. Can you explain a little bit about um, you know what your broader aims are with the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely, um, and I think you're spot on. I, I do bring a little bit of the public health side. Um, before I went on to do my studies in the history and ethics of public health, I got a degree in epidemiology, so I had training in uh, studying sort of the the data, the the numbers of um, injuries in various sports, and I think I came to this project a little bit with an epidemiologist's mindset. Uh, And I think I actually have have come to to think that epidemiology and history have quite a lot in common because they're both searching for causes. Um, Epidemiologists are really interested in what causes disease or injury, Um, obviously a little bit more often in in terms of the medical side of things, but also in terms of the social factors, um, how people interact, uh, and, and other kinds of, of causes of disease. And then obviously historians are interested in historical causes. And I think I, my hope was to sort of combine in an, in an interdisciplinary way, these different ways of thinking about causes. And I was really interested in thinking about trying to understand how did our understanding of football's risks change over time, both in terms of the public health understanding, the, the epidemiology and the medical studies, um, but also the, the social and cultural context in which those understandings developed. Um, and I think in particular, concussion or brain injury is a really fascinating example of that question because in a certain sense, we've known ever since football got its start in the 19th century that there were really significant brain injury risks. And we've, we've had in the language since Uh, the early 20th century language about punch-drunk boxers, for example, um, cartoons of people getting hit over the head and seeing stars, the the sort of cultural and lay knowledge of brain injury was there. But at the same time, it was in some sense not fully there for for over a century um, because we're having in some ways a, a, a sort of rediscovery or discovery of brain injuries risks, a sort of quote unquote concussion crisis that's developed in the last 10 or 15 years. And that really fascinated and puzzled me. I guess I wanted to understand what changed. (laughs) What, What did we know and what did we not know? And how did both of those things change? Yeah.
0: As an historian, one of the things I loved about this book was that you explode this kind of teleological narrative of things just getting better um, all the time, or the game getting safer uh, all the time, um, and and you come at it from this epidemiological point of view, which of course I wouldn't have have um, access to myself. It, so I thought that was that was uh, really kind of fascinating. Um, and I, I guess I I would I would um, ask you to 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 talk a little bit about what type of injuries you did study because. Although you're t- we're talking now about the traumatic brain injury, the book is much more than that. It doesn't only focus on that kind of that kind of injury, does it?
1: Absolutely. There's a, there's a wide range of injuries in football, and in particular, what really interested me was that um, at mid 20th century, when younger kids started playing football more, uh, younger kids meaning elementary and middle school age, the big concern was really around bone and joint injuries, um, so like a broken arm, broken leg, uh, knee injury, injuries of that nature. Um, and that actually was a big concern among pediatricians because they were worried that those kinds of injuries would harm children's long-term growth, especially when you're pre-pubescent and, you know, your growth plates and so forth, you haven't fully developed yet. So bone and joint injuries were a big part of the conversation. and then. Another kind of injury that um, was a major concern and and still is today was uh, back and spinal cord injuries, particularly after helmets were introduced and players were more likely to use their head as a weapon with a helmet on their head. Um, There was an increase in spinal cord injuries and unfortunately, in some cases, paralysis, given uh, the the wrist, the back of, of sort of tackling in that way. So that was a big part of it as well, um, and another risk that I actually think I gave short shrift to in the book. I, I sort of briefly discuss it, but it's another significant risk in football, both past and present, um, is heat injury, uh, heat stroke, and, and and tragic cases, occasionally death. Um, and those those kinds of injuries are especially common in the preseason, particularly players, you know, in August if they're wearing full pads. Um, in states where it's incredibly hot, uh, there is a real risk there as well. Um, so I tried to cover as much as possible the, the range of risks, but I think the, the interesting thing about brain injury and concussion is sort of both, both obviously our current conversation about concussion, but also I think um, parents in particular of kids were not willing to accept brain damage in the same way they were willing to accept uh, a knee injury or, or, you know, broken ankle as, as a risk in the game. And that's something I came across, for example, in in congressional hearings in the 1960s about helmets uh, and whether football helmets offered protection or not. Um, there were parents who testified who, who said, you know, we, we were, Fully aware and, and willing to to sign on to the risk of our son having a, a broken arm, but we weren't ready for the kind of brain injury that he had, and we don't you know we we don't accept that for for our child. We don't think that's an acceptable risk. So I think brain injury it's it's hard not to think about football safety in today's context um, without thinking about concussion. But I think the the book does try to cover. Uh, the broad range of injuries over the past century that have been debated in the sport.
0: That's the other thing I would say about this book is it does have this, um, very broad range. It starts more or less with the origins of football and comes forward to today. And you narrow your focus by looking, um, particularly at, at, uh, youth football, mostly at, at high school students and even younger in the Pop Warner leagues. Can you tell us a little bit about why you made that choice to look at at younger children?
1: Absolutely. I think that was really informed by public health considerations. Um, Most of the work that I had come across when I was, was doing the research and and preparing this, this book, uh, a lot of the literature is on college and and NFL level football for very understandable reasons. The, The professional Level of the sport garners enormous attention, um, and then academics are mostly writing at colleges and have you know direct access, and in a way they maybe don't uh, to other levels of the sport. They have direct access to the college level teams, but I did did observe that I thought there was there was a gap, relatively little written on the history of the youth sport, and also as a public health person, uh, we are interested in population-level health risks from a public health point of view, and the number, just the sheer number of kids who are playing football dwarfs college or professional-level players. Um, Something like 97% of football players in the United States are under age 18, and that's because only a very small percentage make it to the college level, let alone to the NFL. So if you're thinking about the public health implications of the risks of football. Um, From my perspective, the youth level is where it's at. You've got millions of kids who are exposed to those risks. The the other factor, I think, that really motivated me to look at the youth level um, was a bit of the ethical one as well. Obviously, kids can't consent. They they don't have full autonomy. They can't consent to the risks of either short or long-term injury um, so it's really the adults who are making the decision about what risk is acceptable uh, for which kids at what age. Um, and I think that raises some really unique and interesting questions in a different way that the than the risks of football at the college or professional level do. So that's how I came to focus on the youth level. And I ended up You know, I ended up thinking, I hope I haven't been off more than I can chew, because even the youth level, I thought I'll I'll really narrow it down and only focus largely on 18 and under. But there's really interesting differences uh, in terms of high school versus elementary or middle school age kids. So even though I found myself focusing on youth, I found that I had a lot of territory to cover because... um, Football is played through schools, but it's also played through private leagues. There's different considerations for different age groups. So it's actually quite a complicated terrain. Uh, And there's, I think, a lot more work still to be done to to fully understand this history.
0: Well, then we'll get into into it a little bit here, I guess. Um, In your book, you you have four kind of... um, Let's call them sections of the, of the book that I think I think is fair to say are centered around kind of four central questions. The first is more his, historical: how does football rise, and in, in what social and cultural context does it kind of emerge? The second section is about how we understand injury. This was actually for me very fascinating because I thought that would be obvious, but it was not obvious at all. Um, the responsibility for injuries is the third section, and then. Kind of who's impacted and the differential impacts of that. So I, I'm hoping we can work through them a little bit systematically. Um, so maybe starting with the first section on how football rises. Uh, you you look at what I was pulling out uh, was kind of a, an original tension and in, built into the game uh, that it had to be both savage um, in some ways. Uh, because it needed also be a crucible for for, for forming men, uh, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the game, even from its very beginning, had this kind of tension, where it couldn't be too rough, but it needed to be rough at the same time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the the first section uh, focuses on the late 19th century when football was emerging. Uh, at the college and high school level, so there really wasn't football yet, you know, for six-year-olds the way there is today. But uh, it got its start more uh, at the elite colleges and universities uh, in the United in the United States, which would be, for example, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, and then also began to sort of trickle down to prep schools. And from its inception, it was it was really promoted as a Part of the the character building or moral education of boys and young men, either in college or in high school, um, and part of training them to become future business leaders or perhaps military leaders. And the idea was, well, we kind of need to toughen them up somewhat. Uh, So we need a certain amount of brutality. uh, And we're actually attracted by that because we think it'll teach certain values such as, uh, quote unquote, you know, learning to to get hurt um, or to sort of play through an injury to be tough. Um, But at the same time, there's this idea that it teaches uh, discipline uh, and character and and teamwork and these sort of, quote unquote, civilized values. And football seemed to, to really hit this sweet spot in that era of a sport that sort of Answered all those calls. It was incredibly appealing um, in terms of the spectatorship, the the entertainment value. But college administrators um, and and ultimately high school administrators as well could also make the argument that this is of value to to boys' education. We can impart these these valued characteristics or traits that we think will teach them to be uh, future leaders. And one of the uh, Aspects of this history that I found really fascinating, um, and there's a wonderful book by Sally Jenkins that that delves into this more deeply, is the story of the Carlisle Indians, um, because there was a team at one of the uh, boarding schools for Native Americans. Uh, They were coached by Pop Warner, who was a white coach, and his name actually then became the name of Pop Warner Little League or Youth League football. Uh, And the idea was, we're actually teaching Native Americans to be Americans, which is kind of mind blowing in in many ways. Um, But the idea was, we're going to teach these particular, quote unquote, civilized values to Native Americans through football. And it can be a way that Native Americans can demonstrate their equality to um, the the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Uh, who were largely at Harvard and Yale. So there was this really fascinating dynamic, I thought, of football being used to, quote-unquote, civilized perceived savages on the one hand, in terms of training uh, young Native Americans to play the sport. And then on the other hand, it was used in a certain sense to, quote-unquote, toughen up the white Anglo-Saxon uh, Protestant young men at Harvard and Yale Who were seen as needing um, exposure to this kind of uh, quote unquote rough and tumble to become the the future business and military leaders of America. Uh, So I was just fascinated by these really complicated dynamics and how all of them ultimately, I think, had important public health implications because these arguments were used to to justify or to rationalize the risks. Um, The health risks were worth it if they were seen as imparting these crucial core values.
0: Yeah, I think that was one of the things um, that I had understood a little bit before, but not really well enough in your book, Illuminated, in in a very helpful way, that actually football was less acceptable in some ways when it was first emerging than it is today. And there was an enormous push against allowing <laughs> younger people to play play it because it was dangerous. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, okay, we we have the game now in our elite universities and maybe in some of our prep schools, but how does it start to spread across the country? And, and at what point in time do people decide, hey, you know what, six-year-olds playing tackle football is a good idea, too?
1: Right. The, the- moment that seemed to be really important was after World War II. Um, The the Great Depression era was still largely high school and college football. And then what ends up happening, uh, the Pop Warner League is actually founded in the late 1920s, mostly for older adolescents or young men. But most of them end up going off to war in World War II. And Pop Warner almost folds. And in order to to survive, the league effectively reinvented itself after World War II, um, and said we're actually going to focus largely on younger kids under age sixteen, and especially under age thirteen, and that coincided with um, a number of trends in in American history: uh, increased suburbanization, suburbanization, increased prosperity. Um, more organized activities for youth generally, both organized sports such as Little League and other sports, Little League Baseball, um, but also just more organized activities such as music lessons, theater, art, other kinds of programs for children. So football ends up really taking off for younger kids after World War II. And fascinatingly, there was enormous objection from both Um, educational associations, as well as from pediatricians, especially the American Academy of Pediatrics, because they're looking at this trend that's relatively new of six or eight or 10-year-olds playing football and saying, we think this is really dangerous. We don't think this is appropriate um, for kids of this age. We recommend it against it. There were several societies that, that offered formal recommendations against tackle football for kids under age 12. And my interpretation is that the, the result of that is that you don't end up having football offered through elementary or middle schools, but instead what happens is people just end up flocking to the private leagues, Pop Warner or YMCA, um, or sort of Catholic boys, youth groups, uh, other kinds of private leagues that are offering football. So you have this explosion of, of football for young boys, but it's happening outside of schools. Um, And I think the the dynamic of the Cold War uh, had a real influence in the conversation about whether football was appropriate for young boys or not. There's enormous anxieties, very gendered anxieties, over wanting to be sure boys aren't sissies, aren't too effeminate, and are prepared to defend the United States um, should it be necessary if the Cold War were to turn into a hot war. And uh, youth football coaches made incredibly effective use of that rhetoric to say that, you know, football is a way we're going to toughen up young boys um, and get them ready to to, to potentially fight in in a war if necessary. Um, Vice President Nixon said that we are not a nation of softies. He was a former football player himself, and he spoke at youth football coaches' uh, conventions advocating for the sport. Um, And I also think... The, the, the Cold War dynamic uh, ended up contributing to uh, these, these conversations where the pediatricians ended up getting largely ignored. Uh, their advice to, to hold off on football for kids younger than age 12 didn't really make much of an impact. Um, in fact, the, the sport expanded enormously. And one other dynamic I'll add that I think was important at this time is that sports medicine was emerging as a specialized field in medicine in a way that it hadn't existed before. So you increasingly have doctors who are specialized as team physicians, or, you know athletic trainers, people that are specialized to treat players on the sidelines. And they increasingly diverge from the perspective of the American Academy, Academy of Pedi- Pediatrics. So while you have the pediatricians on one hand saying young kids shouldn't play football, On the other hand, you have sports medicine doctors saying it'll be okay as long as we're there on the sidelines to watch out for them. So we admit it's risky, but we can manage the risks and we're professionals specialized in managing those risks. Um, So if you just get us involved, uh, we'll be able to make this reasonably safe for for young boys. So I think those are some of the the factors that ended up um, both cultural and and sort of medical trends in the medical field, ended up making football for young boys um, seem like a, an appropriate, and not just an appropriate, but a, a wholesome and, and actively healthy and beneficial choice for parents who are looking for an activity to sign their son up for.
0: Yeah, I loved, I wish we could talk even longer um, about the kind of gendered ways in which some of these private leagues were um, building themselves around this notion of the nuclear family, and you have a great section where you're talking about how um, the the I think it's Pop Warner, but it might be one of the other leagues is framing mothers as team mothers, but the dads are are, are business managers yes. <laughs> um, but instead of team dads. They, they're, they're business managers. I, I was I was cracking up reading it, just imagining this, but. Um, I do want to move on a little bit because you, you're bringing up this fight between the pediatricians and the and the um, sports medic, medicine uh, doctors. And that brings us into the second section of your book very well, which is about how people started to understand injury in football. And it seemed to be a little bit of a lagging you know, kind of a lagging factor, like football started and then, and then people started to understand their injuries, but maybe had difficulty in measuring their type, the severity, their number. So can you tell us a little bit about how we start to understand what kind of injuries there are in football? And um, then maybe think a little bit or talk a little bit about how um, there was this divide and and especially that John Reichardt and Creighton and Hale uh, section. That's really interesting as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first half of the 20th century, there really weren't any large-scale um, studies of football injuries. So instead, what you mostly had were kind of small-scale case studies. So it would be, for example, the the team doctor who um, worked for the Harvard football team, who maybe made a note of the football players that you know. He, he, and at the time it was almost always a he, personally treated the particular injuries that he saw. Um, and that, that started to give a sense of, you know, I'm, I'm taping up a bunch of these, I'm seeing these kinds of injuries. So there were case reports um, that were, would be published in, in journals like the New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA that gave a sense of, on a small scale, here's the kinds of injuries we're seeing. But into the, the 1960s, there starts to be um, more ability to conduct larger scale epidemiological studies. And part of that is because injury epidemiology is also developing into its own as a field. Part of it is that um, there's money that's being provided by, for example, um, state departments of education to conduct some of these studies. Um, And the studies effectively reveal that of all the the school-sponsored sports, football has the most injuries. Um, If you're comparing football to basketball or to baseball, you're seeing by far the most injuries in football, and you're also seeing the most severe injuries, which these studies tended to to define as an injury that took you out of the game for at least a couple weeks. Um, And in the 60s, this is also a time when you not only have this expansion of the sport to to younger kids, but you also have the introduction of plastic football helmets. And a number of these studies are indicating, you know, these, these helmets don't actually seem to be decreasing the injuries. And in some ways they actually seem to be increasing the risk. There's a number of concerning studies about more um, cases of paralysis, catastrophic neck and back injuries, Um, So you end up in this this sort of moment of crisis where coaches and administrators, I I find it a really interesting possible turning point, are looking at the sport and saying, we have all this public pressure on us. There's been media attention covering these terrible injuries. There's increasing number of of case studies, um, but also larger scale epidemiological studies showing that football is especially risky. We've got insurance companies that are also collecting data and have numbers that are making this really, you know, highlighting this problem. What are we going to do about it? Um, and there, there ends up being these sort of two camps, um, which, as you mentioned, I sort of, I found two authors who published a, a papers around the same time that I used to represent these two camps. One of them was Creighton Hale, who uh, actually worked for for Little League Baseball, was a a physiologist um, and wrote on youth sports generally. And then another was a pediatrician named John Reichert, um, who came from the perspective of sort of a school health expert, a a pediatric expert. And on the one hand, Creighton Hale is looking at at these numbers and saying, well, this actually really isn't that bad. Um, And the burden of proof is on people to demonstrate that this is causing long-term harm. We don't have long-term data showing long-term harm. We don't have data showing that um, you know kids' hearts are affected. I find it really interesting because he focuses on, on like heart health and, and physical growth, but he actually sort of sidesteps the question of, of brain injury or, or other kinds of injuries. But he ultimately argues the burden of proof is to show that competitive sports are very harmful. Nobody's collected enough data to really show that And instead, we need to focus on the benefits of sport, the the, the teamwork and the the social and physical benefits of exercise and and so forth. And John Reichert, a pediatrician, is looking at the very same data and making the opposite argument, which is, well, the burden of proof should be to show that this is sufficiently safe. And that hasn't been shown yet. Um, And I don't think that, uh, speaking of John Reichert, Reichert says, I don't think that doctors and and coaches can manage these risks. They're really significant. We can't treat these kinds of injuries easily. They could have long-term effects. So we need to be more cautious and avoid the collision sports, which would be things like tackle football or boxing for young kids. So there's this really fascinating debate in the medical journals, I think, of, well, where the burden of proof should be. We have this emerging data. And on the one hand, um, there's an argument that supervision. Can address the risks, and there's not enough evidence that these risks are that harmful long term, as represented by Creighton Hale. And then on the other, we have John Reichert saying these risks are really significant and the unknowns should make us cautious. Um, Ultimately, in practice, I think it's Creighton Hale's argument that won the day um, because obviously youth football became increasingly popular. Um, There weren't restrictions placed on it, but I do think that the late 50s and early 1960s were a moment where it could have gone either
0: way. It was really fascinating to see some of the discussion that was happening. Um, and I, I had heard before, because I, I had spoken with uh, another group of scholars who did research on CTE, this comparison between um, the traumatic brain injury, defense of traumatic brain injury by certain people in football, and the, the big tobacco companies, but reading your book, some of the defenses they had were just uh, kind of funny, like, oh, well, football is not even as dangerous as driving around in a car, and you'd let your kid drive in a car, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, and, and it took these long-term studies for maybe some of that information to be shown to be ridiculous <laughs> on its face, but also untrue. Um, so I I thought that was really uh, really, a fascinating part of part of your book. The the section of your book, however, that I thought that was in some ways would be the most interesting to a, a broad just a, a broad range of people is uh, this discussion of how how responsibility for injuries gets meted out, and how um, the organizers of youth sport are able to kind of diffuse responsibility away from the game itself like okay we have a dangerous game but how do we how do we um, how do we assess that danger and who's responsible for that danger and you talk about um, a kind of uh, fundamental conflict of interest between sports medicine, medicine coaches organizers players parents, some of whom are more interested than others but you also uh, talk about this kind of supervisory imperative, Transferring obligations um, away from the game itself onto kind of adults. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this move towards responsibility. This is a very long question. I'm sorry I gave you a long windup, um, but I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how, how especially in the in the um, 50s and 60s, the responsibility for the game gets shifted onto all these other actors and not just. Football is dangerous, but maybe it's helmets are dangerous, or maybe it's the legal system and this is about consumer law, or maybe it's just about parents. They need to, you need to be watching your kids play and noticing their injuries, <laughs> things like that.
1: Yeah. So that section of the book, it's it's so funny looking back because I remember when I was doing this research initially, I thought, oh gosh, insurance and, and liability and lawsuits, that's going to be the most boring part to me because my background's in public health. I like the medical stuff but I ended up thinking this is actually maybe the most important part of the book, or certainly one of the the parts that most surprised me in terms of how engrossed and fascinated I became. Um, So I ended up writing this whole section because I realized I can't, I I can't not write about this. This is so crucial to the story. Um, So in terms of uh, responsibility and, and consumer product safety, what really was fascinating to me, so the 1960s, again, I think is such a crucial decade in the story because there is increased attention to the risks of injury and like, what are we going to do about them? Way more kids are playing football now. It's getting expensive. The insurance companies are worried about how much they're paying out. Um, and all of this is happening at the same time as an emerging consumer product safety movement. Um, it got its start, I think, in some ways with highway traffic safety. Uh, which obviously the 1960s Ralph Nader is unsafe at any speed and and, and many other um, developments uh, put na- National Highway tra- Traffic Safety on the map. And then we end up having uh, several years of, of efforts by Congress that ultimately result in the creation of um, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. And the football helmet ends up becoming the focus of a lot of these conversations of, you know, we have this relatively new plastic helmet. It doesn't seem to be preventing the injuries right now. And the focus ends up being, well, let's standardize the helmet. Um, And there is an incredible amount of sort of faith that's put into, I think the sort of idea like technology will save us if we can just build a better helmet and just standardize the helmet But I also think a big part of this was the sporting goods manufacturers uh, looking at and and also uh, administrators and leagues such as the NCAA looking at the potential for lawsuits uh, and saying, you know, if we can standardize helmets and sort of what they end up doing ultimately sort of putting the stickers on saying, you know, this helmet doesn't protect against all injury, but it's it's been standardized. We can actually maybe protect ourselves. From some of the responsibility, Um, we can protect ourselves from the lawsuits. We can um, sort of put the responsibility on the consumer of, like it's 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 actually your job to make sure you've got the right helmet and that it fits properly. Um, So there's a whole part of the story that's about standardizing helmets and how those standards end up in many ways getting used to um, deflect responsibility away from the makers of the helmets or or the leagues onto uh, individual parents, players, coaches, um, selecting the right helmets, selecting the right equipment. Um, there's also, I think, uh, a sort of dynamic of, we have, as, as you mentioned, the supervisory imperative, this idea of, well, now we have uh, sports medicine physicians and coaches and trainers. We can manage these risks by having people conduct, for example, um pre-participation physical exams before players sign up for the sport. Um, and those exams are, are conducted very quick quickly. Um, they're not always very comprehensive. And it's also not really clear if you can identify a player who's more or less at risk based on, you know, a five-minute exam when the doctor is seeing, you know, 10s, 20s, 30s, even hundreds of, of players in, in the span of just a couple days. Um, but there's there's this idea that we can manage this medically. And as long as you have um, a, a sports medicine physician who's sort of managing or supervising the athletes, as long as you have a coach who's teaching, quote unquote, proper tackling techniques, um, as long as you've got a trainer ensuring everyone's got the proper equipment, we can manage these risks on this sort of individual level. Um So there ends up being, I think, a a reframing of football injuries in some ways akin to the the efforts. I do think the tobacco company comparison is apt. Um, The efforts by uh, tobacco manufacturers saying, well, it's up to you, the smoker, um, to either choose a light cigarette or, you know, it's, it's, it's up to you. It's a personal choice. I think football, the the risks of football get framed as sort of like this is a personal choice and a personal responsibility um in a way that sort of deflects from what the the leagues and the many the manufacturers of the equipment are doing
0: and it was fascinating as you kind of unpacked how they how they went into this developing the standard like there were actually a number of different groups um trying to be the group that that put forward the standard and Surprise, surprise, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that the group that represented the the manufacturers actually becomes the one responsible for the standard and they they go for the minimum standard rather than ranking them. They go, Oh, as long as you get over this little bar, you're good you're golden. And they don't even require them to be testing helmets that have sustained any kind of damage, just brand new ones.
1: That's right. And the The other part of that that fascinated me in terms of the standards was learning that the the way they tested the helmets was basically just dropping them from height. It was sort of it was a a linear force, so it's just sort of like a direct impact, Um, and that actually has very little to do with the kinds of forces that are associated with brain injury, um, which tend to be rotational acceleration. The the example I give is if you think about like whiplash. That you experience in a, a car crash it's really that fast start stop motion and in some ways your head actually rotating around your neck that's most associated with brain injury but the way that they were testing the helmets is much more about skull fractures so it's like well if we can drop this helmet from a height and it doesn't crack open we're golden um, so really this the standard they end up using has very little to do with preventing brain injuries. And and even to this day, helmets really are very bad at preventing concussions. They're still great to prevent skull fractures. So I always tell everyone, if you're riding a bike, please wear a helmet. They're wonderful at protecting your skull. But your brain moves independently of your skull. Um, And the way the football helmets get tested really don't account for that in any way. Um, So I think another really important aspect of that is that there ended up being this sort of perception among the public and and I'm including coaches as well as as parents and players that helmets can protect everything to do with your head including your brain and that just really was not the case.
0: I wish we could talk more about this but I think we need to get onto the the final section uh, of your book which um I which for me was about who is impacted um and whether that impact was equally um felt in different communities because you're really interested in the ways in which it seems like in this section you're really interested in the ways in which um communities played a role in kind of promoting football and that actually football came with certain social benefits but that also um because those social benefits weren't equally um distributed uh, that rural and minority communities maybe were impacted more severely than others uh, by the kind of direction that football had had moved since the 1960s so I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of that
1: yeah I I was really interested in how football became such an important sport in communities and and associated with schools I think in a way that in the United States, other sports aren't that, you know, the football team like represented the school in a certain way. That, um, you know, girl soccer, which I played, certainly didn't. And as I was researching this, I, I do think that dynamic had a really important uh, influence on youth football because you would start with the high school football game being sort of the center of community life, especially in communities in the Midwestern and and Southern parts of the United States. And then you would end up seeing elementary and middle school football sort of develop as a feeder system uh, for high school levels of play. And there would end up being this immense pressure and attention from communities on young football players of of all levels, as sort of expected to represent the community in a certain way. And in in many ways, being a source of entertainment for uh, local communities. So I thought that was a really important part of that dynamic. And I also think that changing demographics was a really important part of the story. So even though football started off as a disproportionately um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant sport in the late 19th, early 20th century, that very much changed over the course of the 20th century. Um, And in particular, after schools uh, were integrated uh, with the civil rights movement in in the 1960s, uh, there was an increasingly uh, disproportionate number of young uh, Black boys who were playing the sport. And I think that that was a really important part of of the change in terms of how we saw the risks, um, in terms of how it dovetailed with, uh, the growth of the NFL, Monday Night Football, um, the idea that you could aspire to, to being a professional football player. You could also aspire increasingly to getting a college scholarship. Um, and for people disproportionately, uh, minority athletes and, and athletes from rural or less well off communities, um, football was sort of increasingly seen as this might be your ticket out. And I think that dynamic, the sort of community pressures, And the sort of the the educational carrots that were held out or the the carrots of of a career of access to higher education played a really important role in informing who's taking these risks um, and and for what reasons. And I think that those trends are are really only continuing today. Um, If you look at the numbers, for example, uh, in, in NCAA Division I schools, um, something along the lines of, you know, 60, 70% of the, the college football team uh, tends to be African-American, even if African-American boys or men only represent something like 4% of the overall student body. So football is really, um, becomes transformed in terms of its, its sort of way of being a ticket out And the risks of the sport, I think, also do genuinely increase in certain ways over that time period, Um, because you have uh, players who are sort of bigger and faster and also specializing in the sport at younger ages, um, the the intensity of competition increases and also the length of exposure increases. So whereas um, back in the the early 20th century, you might have only played a couple years, like three or four years of football you know, just in high school, or maybe a couple years in college. Um, By the second half of the 20th century, you have disproportionately uh, more vulnerable kids and young men who are playing football for maybe 20 years of their life. If they get a professional career, they maybe start at age six or eight and play well into their 20s. So it's many more years of exposure to to tackling and to to collisions, um, and therefore many more years of exposure to the risks.
0: Yeah. Your your final chapter is on this concussion crisis and I, I, you're, you're driving right towards it now. I, one of the things that your, your book shows is that certain technological interventions have been very successful, like mouth guards. That was a great success. And probably a lot of people have teeth now that are their own that wouldn't have had them if we hadn't introduced mouth guards. But the introduction of certain helmets and the um, styles of play and even getting rid of things like spearing um, maybe haven't kept up with just the rising number of hits that people take every year. I think you showed something like the average player, even in high school, having something like 700 uh, minor traumatic brain injury type hits a year or something like that, just an immense number of, of hits to the to the head. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the concussion crisis, and do you think that this is has the potential to change the story in a way that joint injuries didn't have?
1: Yeah, I I do think it has the potential to change the story. I think um, so. That, that chapter looks at the sort of the last couple decades or so, so end end of the 20th century and and into the early 21st. And what I found really interesting was that after the immense pressure on the sport to to reform itself in the sixties and and early seventies with the standardization of helmets, with trying to get rid of spearing, which was um, using your head as a weapon, a technique that was associated with a lot of these spinal cord injuries. There was a decline in some of the really catastrophic injuries that had garnered headlines, fewer cases of of paralysis. Um, but instead, there started to be this increase of, well, wait a second, we, we at least have way fewer kids dying or, or being, you, know, permanently paralyzed. But now we're noticing, now that we've addressed those more in certain ways, um, immediately catastrophic injuries, we're now increasingly realizing that brain injuries, even if they, they aren't immediately catastrophic, uh, are adding up over time and can have really devastating uh, long-term effects. And I do think that that sort of confrontation with the brain injury risks um, does change the terms of the debate a little bit. And it, it goes back to, to even those parents in the 1960s who you know, were testifying in front of Congress saying, you know, we, we weren't sort of aware willing to accept the risk to the brain I think there is a, a real meaningful categorical difference sort of culturally with how brain injuries are understood. They're, they're sort of they're part of your identity. And they're also uh, in tension with the the decades-long arguments that football is good for your education. I mean, football got profoundly tied to American educational institutions because the argument was that. This is teaching good values, educational values, and, and has this educational worth. And the idea that um, it's potentially damaging your brain, potentially in a permanent way, um, I think challenges that idea uh, in, a, in a really important way. Um, the, the part of the change, I think, in, in terms of the emergence of the concussion crisis is genuine uh, increase in research. Um, there's absolutely these studies, as you mentioned, studies where you know sensors are put on helmets, and it's found that you know there's hundreds of impacts over the course of a the season. There's increasing studies of of retired uh, players, as well as autopsies performed on players who have died and donated their brains, that show very concrete evidence of. Brain damage. Um, so there, there's absolutely um, developments in the medical world that I think are driving some of this. But I also think some of it is is social and cultural. And in particular, I thought a, a really important dynamic was players themselves sort of speaking out about their injuries. So having former NFL players by the 2000s saying. You know, I'm living with this, and it's it's harmed my quality of life. Also, having NFL players such as Junior Seau and others who tragically die at young ages, beloved players um, who are sort of symbols of of football in their communities, I think it really does change the terms of debate and and sort of forces a reckoning with: is football really providing the benefits that you know it, it supposedly? um, is meant to provide.
0: I mean, I think that's, that's the crux of your book, that question, um, in some ways. And, uh, I, I wouldn't put this in your voice, but certainly in the voices of some of the people that you're quoting, um, there's a sense that youth football with its spectacular value that brings communities together in some ways that's entertaining is also maybe a sense. Uh, a form of child exploitation. Uh, so I wonder if I can ask you the question that maybe you don't want to be asked, which is: uh, What's the ethical response then of people to football? Should we should we ban it for kids under thirteen? Should we ban it for everyone? I prefer soccer too, so maybe we just play soccer instead. Or what? What? What's the? What? What should we do ethically?
1: I think ethically, and and in terms of the data, where I'm at right now. Is kids should not be engaging in repeated full body collisions. That's where I think the line is drawn because I think there's a you know a century worth of history showing that human bodies and in particular human brains are vulnerable to repeated collisions in ways that equipment and tackling techniques or, or whatever else just cannot minimize. We can't sort of engineer our way around the basic physics of what repeated collisions do to brains. And so to my way of thinking, that means that tackle football is not appropriate for kids. It also means that boxing is not appropriate, body checking in hockey is not appropriate. Um, Anything that involves repeated full body collisions is something we might say, well, we can have a conversation about if you're an adult, maybe you could consent to that if you fully understand the risks and it's, you know, of great value to you, and it's still something you want to do, that might be one question, but it's something that, that kids really cannot consent to. And it's not appropriate to impose that kind of risk to, on on a young child. Um, But something I found incredibly fascinating as I was researching this was that I, I do think football stands out in, in the history as one of the only collision sports that's still considered acceptable for kids I mean, we don't allow young kids to box. Um, medical uh, associations have recommended against that for decades. And uh, hockey leagues do not allow body checking, usually now up until age 14 or 15. So I think tackle football really stands out as being one of the only sort of collision sports with with that level of risk that's still allowed for young kids. And I think, I guess part, part of my process in writing this book was trying to figure out why Um, because I don't think there's any medical reason to say that tackling is okay for kids and body checking isn't Um, so what's the historical and social and cultural reason that we made that determination as a society for so many decades and does understanding that history help us think about what the future of the sport might be
0: Well, our final question is always the same, and it is, what can we look forward to um, seeing out in print next? Or what's your, what's your next project?
1: Uh, well, my next project has uh, moved to the, the other side of the gender equation in some ways. Um, the, I think the next thing I'll be publishing uh, is actually on the topic of Larry Nassar um, and, and abuse. Uh, in sports, obviously, particularly affecting gymnastics, uh, women and girls in gymnastics, um, and the effect of the Me Too movement in sort of bringing some of that sort of mental health as well as physical health issue to light. Um, And I think that's actually the direction I'm going in now is is to looking to to girls' sports and some of the the mental health, physical health, um, and, and abuse, which sometimes takes the form of sexual abuse, but also sometimes verbal. And physical abuse. Um, I think the the overarching theme that's connecting these different research projects is protecting kids in sports and and public health in sports um, and what kinds of risks have been hidden and how are we uncovering them? What are the forces that are leading us to uncover them? Um, And is there a way to, I guess, from a public health perspective, ultimately, harness some of this to, to offer sports that are healthy and safe, or at least as safe as possible for kids.
0: That sounds fascinating. I'm already looking forward to it. And I, I can think of several uh, other people who are certain to be looking forward to that as well. Um, thank you, Kathleen, very much for joining us. We've been here on the New Books in Sports podcast, the channel on the New books and uh, the new books network we've been speaking with uh, kathleen baszynski who is an assistant professor of public health at Muhlenberg college and the author of the award-winning no game for boys to play the history of youth football and the origins of a public health crisis out from unc press in 2019 pick it up pick it up It's it's a great read thank you very much kathleen for joining us
1: Thank you for such a wonderful conversation.
0: And thank everyone. Thank you to everyone for listening.